Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the 18th chapter. Read verses 1 through 17. Hear now God's Word. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of uh, Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. And thus far... The reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. In preaching through a book of the Bible, and I think this is especially true of historical books like the book of Acts, it's important to remember that we are stitching together week by week a narrative, a story, if you will, of sermons that advance this story that God is telling and he wants us to remember and know and be encouraged by. Some parts of the story are more dramatic and some parts are more mundane. And so I think it's somewhat like the variety of meals that we eat. Not every meal is a wow, but every meal provides nutrition and growth and health. And we're to view the Word of God that way. As we read all of the words of God, they're all given for our benefit and blessing. So between the first and the second missionary journeys, the Apostle Paul and his companions have been to many places, and they have traveled an incredible distance, many, many, many miles. And a clear pattern has emerged. Wherever they go, the first thing the apostle does and his companions is they find the local synagogue and they began to attend uh, the Sabbaths there. And there was an opportunity to preach the word and to persuade both the Jews and the God-fearers who attended the synagogue. Second, 
Usually the pattern is after they get run out of the synagogue, he then goes to the Gentiles. Third, most often he is arrested, beat up, or run out of town. And then third, uh, fourth, uh, the very next thing he does is he heads to the next town. So uh, he just keeps going. Next. And so having left Athens, the city that was really well-known historically for education and philosophy, he now heads out to Corinth, which is a great city, a large city that is known for its commercial enterprises. It commanded the trade routes in all directions, uh, north-south by land and east-west by sea. So this is a central hub where people are coming and going all the time. It seems that Paul is moving strategically to places that had both Jewish synagogues and larger populations. Athens may have had uh, less than 10,000 inhabitants, but Ephesus had a half million, and Corinth had nearly three-quarter million people. So these are really significant cities. We're going to do Corinth today, and we'll look at Ephesus next. And so the people, again, were constantly coming, coming and going, and this offers a great opportunity for the gospel to spread. And this is one of the ways we see how the kingdom, like the leaven, is spreading. So people get converted, maybe they're traveling, they go back where they came from, and they take the gospel with them. We should also note that even though there were several thousand Christians in the world at this point, Nevertheless, the Christians are still a very tiny minority. We're, we're in about 50 A.D. here. And so just a few thousand Christians in, in, in just in these cities, for example, much less Rome. And I'm, I want to bring this out because we should remember that on Pentecost, there were about 120 people who were commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel to the whole world. Think of how daunting that is, how unbelievable, how, how could that be? But then again, think of Abraham and Sarah, this old man, this old woman who have no children. They're promised that their descendants would be like the stars. They would be like the sand of the sea. How could that be? And that they ultimately, their descendants would be a blessing to the whole world. And so... Even after Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, the church there still probably wasn't but about 100 or 150 people. That's less people than we have sitting in this room right now. And they were a hot mess, as Paul's letters to the Corinthians indicate. So the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians give us more context to this ministry that Paul is starting now in Corinth. For example, one of his primary concerns for the church was the rampant sexual sins that were found among the members of the church. So they're coming out of this culture, uh, and this isn't surprising since, like many large cities, this was the other thing that Corinth was famous for, its sexual immorality. It was everywhere. One of its, on one of its great flat summits was the temple to Aphrodite or Venus, who was the goddess of love. A thousand female slaves served this temple and roamed the streets at night as prostitutes. But the gospel 
and this is really critical here as we face a similar culture, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to confront that culture. It is going to warn them that sexual immorality, uh, those who are engaged in sexual immorality, would not inherit the kingdom of God. Corinth, again, was not unlike our own sexually immoral culture, so Paul did not hesitate to call people to abandon that culture. That is a culture of death. And we should not in any way pull back from such a call. For example, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this, this instruction to the church, and therefore it's an instruction to us, flee, run from, get away from sexual immorality. Put some distance a great deal of distance between you and it. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You don't get to do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's a dramatic call to a different way of living for the Corinthians and for us. So Paul was evidently a skilled tent maker or perhaps a more broadly a man who worked with leather Rabbis were required to have a trade to help support themselves, and, it's, it, and it was through this that he met a married couple who were in the same trade, Aquila and Priscilla. They have been expelled from Rome under the edict of Claudius, who expelled all the Jews from Rome in A.D. 49. And according to the Roman historian uh, Suetonius, the reason for this was, was that the Jews were making, quote, constant disturbances in the instigation of Christus, which may very well have meant Christ. So the gospel, remember now, is still, uh, the Christians are kind of a subset of Judaism. That's why Paul's always going to the synagogues. There he, as a Jew, could come in and speak and have a platform. And many Jews have been converted. But there's all this controversy, this strife that has been stirred up because of Christ. And so uh, from the Roman perspective, there was trouble among the Jews over Jesus. And this was threatening the peace of Rome, and thus they had to go. So just get rid of them. You, don't, you guys can't get along. We're just going to put you out. So it's possible that Aquila and Priscilla were converted in Rome and not in Corinth. And this would also indicate that the church was in fact starting to grow outside the the bounds of just where Paul and his companions had been on missionary journeys. So again, other people are going out and evangelizing besides them. So Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, and some, and some Jews and Greeks believed, but many in the synagogue were upset and, in fact, opposed him and blasphemed him. That is, spoke evil of him, spoke badly of Paul. And so Paul's response was that he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. 
from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is saying that there is a death sentence on this place, on you. You are calling, in effect, by rejecting the Messiah, you are calling for your own death. And so he shakes out his garment. I'm thinking perhaps Paul, being well-versed, of course, in Scripture, might have had Ezekiel 33 in mind. Verses 1 through 5, again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon on a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning... If the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard he heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take the warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes the warning will save his life. So Paul is this watchman who's warning them, calling them to Christ. So Paul is also following the instruction of Jesus when he sent out his disciples and and they encountered a city or people who would not receive them, Jesus instructed them to shake the dust off of their feet as a testimony against them. So this exit from the synagogue was significant and would be really a defining moment for his mission in Corinth. Paul would write to the church in Rome, probably while he was still in Corinth, and express his grief over this situation this way. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, for my countrymen, according to the flesh. So this broke his heart that he was being rejected and his message was being rejected. And he would then further argue that what happened in Corinth didn't thwart the purpose of God in the redemption of his people. Romans 11. I say then, have they stumbled, that is the Jews, that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles how much more their fullness. And so Paul sees God's hand at work in this as another means of spreading the gospel to the world. Of course, no one could accuse the Apostle Paul of a lack of boldness since he, what does he do after he leaves the synagogue? He sets up his operation, if you will, his mission at the house of justice, who's described as one who worshiped God, who lived next door to the synagogue. No doubt the conversion of Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, was a huge provocation. This was seismic. It was significant. The ruler of the synagogue has now embraced Jesus Christ. And we are told that he believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we learn that the only people that Paul baptized were Crispus 
and Gaius. He personally baptized Crispus. The ruler of the synagogue was the one who organized the services of worship and ordinarily would be a man of wealth and and status in the Jewish community. So this, again, was a big deal. Now, it would be a gross understatement to say that Paul had been through a great deal over the past few years, even on this second missionary journey. It's likely that he had both discouragements and fears, and he certainly couldn't help but be physically and emotionally exhausted. And so Jesus spoke to him, verses 9 and 10. This is the part I really want to key on this morning. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision and, and said, Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So let me point out five important points from this statement of Jesus. First, Jesus tells Paul, do not be afraid. This is an oft-repeated statement throughout the Bible, and one that each of us needs to be reminded of. Do not be afraid. God frequently comes to the rescue of his people by saying this. For example, and I'm not going to cite the, all the passages here, I'm just going to mention them, because, and actually this is just a truncated list. Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, the servants of King Hezekiah, to Jeremiah, to God's people, through Isaiah, through Je- uh, uh, Jehaziel, uh, to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, to the women at the tomb, to Simon Peter, to Paul earlier when he was in shipwreck, And many, many other places, God's word comes and says, Do not be afraid. I am with you. And Jesus assures us all, all of us, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Let that soak in. Regardless of the peril, when God is at our side with the assurance of his loving and providential care and governance of all things, we have no need to be fearful. Romans 8, 31 through 35, what shall we say then to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also written, arisen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Charles Spurgeon commenting on Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, which says this, The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So no matter what's going on, this big storm, 
a whirlwind, a tornado. He says this, you will often hear two Christians talk. One of them will say, oh, my troubles and trials and sorrows, they are so great I can hardly sustain them. I don't know how to bear my affliction from day to day. But the other one says, ah, my troubles and trials are not less severe, but nevertheless they have been less than nothing. I can laugh at impossibilities and say they will be done. What is the cause of the difference between these two men? The secret is that one of them carries his troubles and the other one did not. It doesn't matter to a porter how heavy a load may be if he can find another to carry it all for him. But if he is to carry it all himself, of course he does not, he does not like a heavy load. So one man bears his troubles himself and gets his back nearly broken, but the other cast his troubles upon the Lord. Ah, it doesn't matter how heavy troubles are if you can cast them on the Lord. The heavier they are, so much the better, for the more you have gotten rid of, then the more there is laid upon the rock of our salvation. Never be afraid of troubles. However heavy they are, God's eternal shoulders can bear them. He whose omnipotence is testified by the revolving planets and systems of enormous galaxies can sustain you. Is his arm too short that he cannot save, or is he weary that he cannot hold you tightly? Your troubles are nothing to God, for the very clouds are the dust of his feet. Second, Jesus says, but speak and do not keep silent. We can easily grow discouraged and we might be tempted to retreat, to be silent. Sometimes we feel like perhaps we're sweeping water uphill, but when God's word goes forth, it does not return void. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. I don't know how that works. I don't know how when you plant a seed it produces a plant. There's a lot of things I don't understand. But God has revealed and told us that when His Word goes forth, it's very much like that seed. It brings life. It does, not me. I'm the the one who delivers it. I'm like the guy who's scattering the seed. I'm not the one that gives it life. But he's called us to go scatter that seed, to speak that word. Romans 10.14, How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Third, Jesus adds, I am with you. These words echo the original covenant promise that God made to his people in the past. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Genesis 39-2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. By the way, it repeats that in the story of Joseph. It didn't matter if he was in prison or in Pharaoh's house, and the Lord was with him. As God sent Moses to Pharaoh, he said, I will certainly be with you. When Joshua was afraid of stepping into the shoes of Moses, 
We read this, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. In Joshua 3, 7, And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the spirit of all, in the sight of all Israel, that they may know, th- know that as I was with Moses, so I shall be with you. And in Isaiah 43, 2, we're told, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, and they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Fourth, Paul is reassured that and no one will attack you and hurt you. There was going to be more trouble in Corinth. Paul had been imprisoned at Philippi. He had been beaten severely in Lystra. These words must have been a great comfort to the apostle. I was thinking about this. We, I think, perhaps tend to think that the apostles were some kind of superhumans. But these were real men of flesh who felt the kinds of things that we feel. Pain, sorrow, fatigue, depression, anxiety, all those temptations. Fifth, Jesus gave Paul a peek behind the curtain of his plan. And this is really critical. He said this, for I have many people in this city. While we were, while there were already some Christians present, there were many more yet to come. J.I. Packer wrote this, so far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, That evangelism will be fruitful. Apart from it, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen, and there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. We cannot change people's hearts, but we can plant seeds and we can water those seeds. Paul would again later write to these very Corinthians and say this, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed? As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And then verse 11 tells us that Paul continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. In Paul's Macedonian vision, he was told to go somewhere. And in this vision, he's being told to stay put. During this time, more Jewish opposition was stirred up, and ultimately Paul is brought before the court, before the tribunal. Gallio was the proconsul or the judge, and Paul would have been placed on a large raised platform in the agora or in the marketplace. It's very public. This is where trials were heard, and he was charged with promoting an illegal religion. This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law, they said. 
And in this case, the claim was that he was violating the teaching of the Judaic religion, not the Roman religion. Judaism was recognized as a legal legal religion in Rome. Gallio, unlike Pontius Pilate, though, did not give the Jews what they wanted. He didn't cave in to their pressure. He seemed annoyed, actually, by it all, and essentially said that it wasn't a matter for the court, and he basically threw the case out. Verses 14 through 16, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason... Uh, There would be reason why I should bear with you, but if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge in these matters. And he drove them out from the judgment seat, threw it out of court. Now remember, the Jews themselves were not loved in Rome and Roman territories, and so a mob saw this as an opportunity to lash out at them. Verse 17, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. You got the picture? Paul, the case is thrown out. And now the crowd is actually upset with those who brought the case against him. And so they grabbed the new leader of the synagogue, because Crispus had been converted and was no longer there. So Sosthenes um, is the one who gets beaten up by the crowd. He's the man who had succeeded Crispus and uh, the one who had, again, recently been converted by Christ. But this is really interesting, and we have to speculate here, but I think it's healthy speculation to note that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. We don't know if Sosthenes was converted before or after he was beaten, but it appears that two of the rulers of the synagogue were converted to Christ. In either case, Gallio turns a blind eye to this attack, which suggests that he didn't really like the Jews. And so Paul escapes. Why? Because of the judge's prejudice against his accusers. Thus God uses... These circumstances to fulfill what he told Paul, no one will attack you to hurt you. All of us have people in our lives who we love and who are not Christians. Let me urge you not to stop speaking. Don't stop speaking to them. Don't stop praying for them simply because God hasn't worked in them yet. In fact, he may be working in them right now. We don't know. Just like I don't know what's going on when that seed's in the ground, there's things going on and I don't see it. There are things going on in everybody's life. And if you think about your own life or other people you know who've been converted, that process often began weeks, days, months, years ahead of time. So don't stop. Moreover, there are many other many others around you who are God's people, but we don't know who they are yet. There are many many of God's people in this city. Keep speaking, keep praying. God hears all of our prayers. 
and he attends all our work and words. Some results appear soon, and others come much later, even generations later. For example, we are some of the fruits of the work that Paul was doing at Corinth. 2,000 years later, I thought about Revelation 14, 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Somebody pointed out once to me, and it stuck with me, that perhaps we don't have judgment day until the world is ended. Because all of what we do carries on throughout all all of history. It has impacts. All those little acts of kindness and love, every prayer that's prayed, every act of faith, as well as every evil deed, these all have ramifications. And so I'll just end with this thought. Regardless of our circumstances... Culturally, personally, regardless, God is with us. And that changes everything. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we give you thanks today for inspiring and preserving your word for us that we might see and hear how you have worked in times past through the apostles, through your people, and even through wicked men to accomplish your holy will. Even in the most difficult circumstances, you are with us to guide and comfort us so that we need not fear what men can do to us. We pray all this and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, 13 through 17. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. One of the many reasons that we start our week at the Lord's table is to sanctify the Lord in our hearts. That is to set him apart, to make sure that he is first place, that he has the preeminence, that he is indeed our Lord. And once that is settled, we're ready to face whatever comes our way. No one and no thing can harm us because we are followers of what is good. Yes, there will be some suffering, but with our hearts right with God, then we will have the right perspective that brings meaning and brings value to everything and to every circumstance. With this attitude, we are ready to speak up and to give answers because our conduct reflects that Jesus is, in fact, 
our Lord. So, are you ready to renew covenant with God this morning? To acknowledge his lordship over you and to go forth from this table ready to live for him. And now, O Lord, teach us to come to you when our spirits are depressed, when we grow weary or anxious. Draw us to yourself. For you are the only one who can fix our hearts and furnish us with a ballast to to render us steadfast. Without your grace to uphold us, we are but wind. May we be in union with you who does not move, nor is changed by time or circumstances, but who sits in the heavens and moves all things by your powerful hand according to your infinite skill. While we have you as our God, we have your immutability for our advantage. The nearer we come to you, the more stability we will have in ourselves. The further from you, the more liable we are to drift. Bless us now on this Lord's Day. Bless our rest and our feast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.